0: All right, would you you join me in the Bible as we take up the Gospel of John? We're looking this morning at John chapter 19. It's our focus this morning in the Scriptures, John chapter 19. This is uh, broadly described as the passion, passion of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus. Here, John is giving us the final hours uh, before Jesus breathes his last on the cross. John chapter 19, beginning at the second half of verse 16, and carry it through to verse 27. Hear the word of the Lord. So they took Jesus. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucify Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier and also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This is to, fill, to fulfill what the scripture, the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. This is God's word. Trust that you're deeply grateful to the Lord that we get this in our hands and we can attend to it quite easily. Well, let's trust Him now for, um, for this time of preaching. This is not just a one way street. So I'll pray and preach and you pray asking for the voice of God because my voice can do nothing at all. So we need divine help now. Father in heaven, we pray that you would grant grace to me to preach clearly, grant grace to all of us to listen with expectant minds and hearts, open ears. Lord, we need to hear far more than what we audibly hear. We need to have implanted in our hearts the very living and active word. And so, Lord, even through this foolish means of preaching, we pray that you would accomplish your good work, not because we are worthy, but in spite of us, because you have called us to this task. So we pray like Samuel did when he first heard your voice. Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. May it be. For the glory of Jesus. Amen. Well, in my own uh, in my own Bible reading of at least the Old Testament portion of it, I've been I've been working my way through first and second chronicles. If you've read through uh, Chronicles, these books really give you an overview of the history of Israel, uh, beginning with Adam, right through to the Babylonian captivity. But there's a significant focus on the kings of Israel and Judah. So if you've read through them, you can read about David and Solomon and Rehoboam and Josiah and Hezekiah, Ahab and Manasseh, some righteous kings, many who were quite unrighteous. It's really a, a sad history. So much favor from the Lord on those who were anointed his kings, and yet many of these kings had, had turned to idols. Some had even sacrificed their own sons in the fire, and they led God's people astray. And they were a, a sorry lot, if you do read through First and Second Chronicles. But But in the middle, in the middle of this great and wonderful history, you have this this promise made to King David by the Lord. And this is the promise that David heard. I declare to you, the Lord said to David, that the Lord will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up after your offspring, after you, one of your own sons and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever." what the Lord told David, that there would be a king in his lineage that would reign and rule over his people forever. A glorious promise. Well, here we are. Here we are in the Gospel of John, and I just read this section before Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus had already had a, a sort of a mock coronation He had a a crown of thorns woven together by the soldiers and it was pressed into the flesh of his head. He has now been stripped naked. His wrists have been fastened to a beam with spikes and he has been hoisted up for all to see him die. And over his head is this inscription, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Now I can imagine people thinking, King of the Jews, They saw the sign. It was a spectacle to behold, to be sure, as crucifixions often were, as Rome made a habit of of executing its enemies of the state and people. Looking for some spectacle, cast their gaze upon those who were condemned to die in some gruesome act, watching the agony. But I can imagine people thinking when they see the sign, this, this is the one God promised to David? What kind of king is crucified? A weak king, a defeated king, a criminal king. What kind of king is this? Now, of course, John has a point of view, our gospel writer, and of course, the Holy Spirit has put it in him to write this down. What John wants us to see, what the Holy Spirit wants us to see, even in this moment, he wants us to see God the Son. Jesus as the King who is anointed by God so that by looking at Him, looking to Him, and us now separated by 2,000 years, us looking to Him with the eyes of faith, we might find eternal life in His name. So as we look closely at this scene, this final scene before Jesus breathes his last, this scene as he is fastened to the cross, I want you to notice five things about what kind of king Jesus is. First of all, the story about Jesus is true history. Second, Jesus is a humble king. He's a humble king. Third, Jesus is a rejected king. Next, Jesus is a sovereign king, the sovereign king. And finally, he is a personal king. It's true history. Jesus is a humble king, a rejected king, a sovereign king, and a personal king. First, Jesus' story The story about Jesus as king is true history. It's true history. Now, whenever we read something, and I read lots of of news in particular, and uh, these days I get it off the internet, but when you read something, I'm sure you're you're like me, when you read something, be it a news article, some sort of history book, what comes to our minds is, is the question, and it's probably foremost on our minds, is it true? Is it true? And it's really the question that divides fiction from history, right? Is it true? Sometimes it's very hard to tell because we're not sure of the source. Now, I I watched a movie some time ago. Maybe it was a couple years ago. I I really enjoyed that movie, Captain Phillips. That movie was based on on an actual event, the the seizing of a container ship by Somali pirates. It was a compelling story, and I think it was really well-acted. But a few weeks after I saw the movie, someone pointed out to me that the real Captain Phillips was not the hero that the film made him out to be. I don't know whether that's true or not, but that's what somebody told me. That a significant representation of him, the way he was shown in that film, it was in fact a fiction. But I was reminded. What was the source? Well, it was Hollywood. See, what they're, what they're interested in doing, they're interested in selling movies more interested in that than depicting events truthfully. And, and really, when it comes down to it, how much does that matter? Well, true or not, I enjoyed the story, I enjoyed the movie, it doesn't really matter much. I'm not basing my life decisions on the story. But when we think about the story of Jesus, it matters that it's true. And because the source of the story about Jesus is not just John, this disciple. He was an eyewitness disciple of Jesus. But the source of this story is also the Holy Spirit that inspired him to write it down. So we can, in fact, anchor our lives on what we read. Now, in the story, there are some important facts about Jesus that are presented to us by John. And I want you to see that, that this matters, that these are facts and not now, you may be going with me and saying, well, of course it's fact, it's a Bible. And I would say the vast majority of us here would say, well, of course, it's, it's true. But, but stay with me why we need to just give this a little bit of a focus. I want you to notice some details that John includes, that, that there was a crucifixion, nothing remarkable about that in first century Rome. Rome crucified a lot of people. So there's nothing significant about crucifixion. We're told that Jesus was crucified with two others and he was in the center, an important detail. We're told of the location of the crucifixion somewhere outside of the city. It's called the place of the skull. Um, scholars and archeologists aren't entirely sure today where that is, but certainly when he wrote this down, somebody in reading his account would have said, if, if it's not true, would have challenged him on the fact. And we would have found that in, in, in the history of, of documentary support for this. But John includes this fact. And there are four women present at Jesus' crucifixion. John chose to point out that there are two of whom are are named Mary and Jesus' mother and another woman who's the sister of Jesus' mother. Now, John never mentions Jesus' mother name being Mary, but we know that from history. So there are these four women there now, I just want you to think with me as, as a, a way, if somebody's about to write a fiction, would you put three of four women there and give them all the same name? Highly unlikely, right? You would, you would want to create some separation in the characters, right? Then there's just one tiny little piece of evidence to say, John simply wrote it down. He'd make anything up. He observed, oh, well, there's Mary, And there's the other Mary. And then Jesus' mother. He doesn't name her just to avoid the confusion. Well, that's another Mary. We know that's Mary. Three Marys and and Mary's sister. Just a few examples here of, of the entire gospel record. When a disciple of Jesus records history, he includes things as they simply happened, even if the fact is embarrassing or seems odd, or if it might lack creativity in the story. Like three women named Mary or the fact that Jesus' disciples abandon him. John simply writes. And as it regards the disciples and John being a disciple of Jesus, the story he tells is one that's not very flattering of himself and all of the disciples. It's true history. And John writes it down, not as a myth to teach a principle, As the world would look at this, right? They they say, you hold on to that Bible. Well, it's just a myth and it's teaching some important... No. It's true, history. We are anchoring our lives on this. And it's true because of the source. And because of the source, it's truly good news to us. Now, as I said, I think most of us in this room take this for granted. But because the world does not... Believers in Jesus, we need the confidence of our Bibles to know that they are true. And when somebody says, well, it was just written down, it was just some stories to teach some, some principles, we must be confident in the answer. Say, no, it is true, every single word. Peter, in reflecting on the story of Jesus, the gospel record that he himself participated in, in preaching. The gospel of Mark is in large measure as a result of Peter's preaching. He says in his letter, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are not cleverly devised And so the confidence that Peter, the apostle, has is the confidence that we can have too. Listen, Peter says in his first letter that that in your hearts, you are to set, sorry, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And as a result of that, what are we to do? Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. A reason. Now, he says this to those who are suffering persecution. They're going to be called to task. They're going to be called to, to explain why they're willing to suffer persecution for the name of Jesus. But it applies equally across the board to anyone who belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ that in our hearts we must say, he is set apart, he is holy, we is sanctified in our minds because of who he is. And therefore, we must be prepared to make a defense So part of of our preparation is to be able to testify, yes, to how you have been forgiven in Jesus, yes. How he died in your place for your sin, yes. But that testimony, listen, that testimony is meaningless if the events on which they're based did not happen. Our confidence in the gospel before others is not just that we believe it but we believe it because it's based on historical facts. It is only good news if it is true. The story about Jesus is true history. Secondly, what we learn from this account is that Jesus was a humble king. So what kind of of king is Jesus? Well, he's a humble king. Now, as a leader of a nation, so picture yourself leading a nation, if you were a king or some sort of monarch, if you knew you had to die, it was kind of written into the plan, you might want to choose how it would happen, right? And if you were able to choose how that death might happen, it would seem you might choose a means that would communicate to those who came after you the particular heroism of your death, And celebrate your life, at least after the fact. It was a small, maybe a small consolation. And lots of of leaders have died, running into a hail of bullets, dying in the heat of battle. Glorious death. Now, Jesus knew he was going to die. He is king of the Jews, right? Now, given that he is the son of God, he certainly could have chosen the mode of his death, and he did. But in choosing the very mode of his own death, he chose that which would not initially regard him as a hero, but that people would regard him as a cursed man. Crucifixion is certainly not glamorous. It was in fact hideous. The the crucifixion itself was was in the minds of a typical Jew a, a proof that the man was cursed by God. God, look how he died. God must hate him. God must be casting him in to the darkness of hell. He must be cursed. Even the events, though, leading up to Jesus' death, again, he's in charge of this, right? Further humbled him. In verse 17, John tells us that he went out bearing his own cross. He had to carry the means of his own execution, dragging it through the streets, uh, maybe a mile and a half or two. Verse 23, to further humiliate Jesus, the soldiers took his garments and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier. They didn't even leave him with the dignity of an undergarment. The events leading up to Jesus' death and the means of Jesus' death, he was humiliated in every way possible. And so when the crowds saw him, even with that sign over his, over the, over his head, the charge, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. The crowd seeing him, they, they didn't pity him. They didn't think of him as some sort of heroic figure. No, the crowd saw him as one, well, deserving. He deserved his end. He was cursed by God. The means of Jesus' death, sealed it in the minds of his own enemies, that he was not just executed by Rome, but that God was unleashing his own righteous wrath upon him because he deserved it. That's what they were thinking. And Christian brother and sister, it is true. God was unleashing his own righteous wrath on Jesus, but but not because he deserved it. Jesus died the most inglorious death for you and for me. The apostle Paul points out what was accomplished. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus was humbled to the lowest place in creation. A king scorned and abused and regarded as nothing by many, taking that lowest place in creation. The king of the Jews was regarded as cursed. The king over all creation was subjected to the worst of its evils. And that, friends, is central to Jesus' saving mission. Yes, he is the king of the Jews. He is the king of the Jews, but he was a humble king. Because he said of his own ministry, for the Son of Man, Mark 10, 45, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Apostle Paul, in describing the the humiliation of the Lord Jesus says in Philippians 2, I go here often, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And he doesn't stop there because his readers knew how hideous it was, even death on a cross. So brothers and sisters, even In his saving work, and most especially in Jesus' saving work, he exemplified for us the attitude that we need to have before God to be saved. Jesus came in humility to save us from our sin. And we must come in humility to be saved from our sin. And that humility is looking to Jesus, the humble king who suffered in our place. So let me ask you, have you humbled yourself and put your faith in Jesus today? If you're watching from somewhere else in the city or around the world, let me ask you, have you humbled yourself and turned to Jesus in faith? He is the humble king. Third, he is the rejected king. He is a rejected king. Um, I think it's just simple observation. It reveals that uh, for us, especially living in this nation, for the democratic process to work, the the electorate has to be knowledgeable and virtuous as a whole, right? For the whole thing to work. Because if there are people who are bent on greed, selfishness, self-indulgence, laziness, if people are bent on that, they will ultimately elect leaders who reflect what they most value. That is the curse of the democratic system, is it not? And and sometimes perhaps we wonder today if a truly virtuous leader ran on a platform that that elevated what is righteous and who called people to self-sacrifice rather than self-indulgence, who truly honored the Lord. I think we wonder: would that person have much of a chance of getting elected? What, What you're not going to give me something I want? You're not gonna give me comfort? You're gonna call me to some moral code? You're gonna say I need to be better? Well, of course we know that kings don't get elected, they get coronated, they ascend to their thrones. And Jesus was truly king of the Jews, as was the charge placed over his head on the placard. But the very religious leaders who had said that they were waiting for this Messiah, this king, this anointed one, they rejected him. Why? Because he didn't give them what they wanted. They wanted they wanted to be lifted up. They wanted to be put on a pedestal. They wanted to be honored. They wanted the Messiah to show up and say, hey, chief priests and Pharisees, you guys have done an amazing job. Show me, show me my people. And, and, and by the way, you can all be in my cabinet. Yeah, that's what they wanted. But Jesus, he saw their pride. He saw their, their greed. He saw the way in which they abused people. And he called them out. And they didn't like it, and they said, "Well, we don't want anything to do with him." So They rejected, you know, when they when when Pilate wrote the charge, "This is just Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews." They said, "No, no, 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 no! Don't don't do that. He's not actually that." They said. They said you just said it. Of course, Pilate wants to stick it to them. <laughs> no, nope, I've just written it. Leave me alone. What have written? I've written. See, they, 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 they disagreed with the premise of the charge because, in fact, Jesus was put to death for the charge of being king of the Jews. In effect, saying to all of those religious leaders, you rejected your king. Not you rejected somebody who is an imposter. No, the charge simply said he is the king of the Jews. The charge was... He's king of the Jews. And you offered him up to be crucified, you rejected the king of the Jews. And that was made known. And just so everybody could understand it, it was up there in three languages. So anybody in and around Jerusalem, if they spoke Latin or Aramaic or Greek, they would have had the message loud and clear. That's why Jesus died. Now, the the rejection of Jesus by the ones that should have understood the scriptures that they claimed was now... The scene paints a picture of what to expect. Jesus' own people didn't receive him. Of course, John told us that at the beginning of the gospel. He was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And so if, if Jesus' own people, the people of his own religious heritage, Jews, if they rejected him, that it should not be a surprise to us that most people in the world today don't receive him either. Now, Jesus described what it would be like, what it would be like to trust him as king. And this message needs to come to our ears. We need to be reminded of this because Jesus said this in Matthew 7, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. For the, way, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. The reason those who find it are few is because those who find it are ones who have not Rejected Jesus as their king. What kind of king is this that is rejected by most people? And brothers and sisters in Christ, it's the kind of king that we follow today. Jesus is in our culture and our time a rejected king. Now we we in this nation, in the western part of the world, for a long time, we've enjoyed this sort of easy alliance between being Christian and being American or Canadian or, or British. But I think, and Josh pointed this out to me if, maybe a few weeks ago, but it's stuck in my head. It's getting to the point, and maybe in the not-too-distant future, where, I mean, it used to be, you can be good Christian and good American. That works well together. But maybe the time's coming and not too far from now where being good Christian, faithful to the Lord Jesus, means by the standards that society sets, bad American. And are you willing to take the narrow way? Are you willing to be Bad American, not according to the Constitution. I'm just saying the way people talk. Oh, you hold that view about marriage? You're a bad American. You think this about what the Bible says? Well, that's hate speech. You're a bad American. And listen, I'm not trying to set you up so that you go out of these walls and, and, and look with hostility, but, but understand there's a time coming, perhaps in our own lifetime, and I'm thinking in the lives of my children or grandchildren, where being good Christian might very well mean being bad American. Where are you today? Are you willing to stay on the narrow way Are you willing to be called bad by society because they have a turned-on-its-head sense of morality? Are you willing to be counted as an enemy of the state to identify with Jesus? Pray that you are. Now, the good news is that while Jesus is rejected as king by so many in our world today, the good news is this and hold to this. John said this at the beginning, while many rejected Jesus, there is a truth here. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, and I trust that that's all of us here this morning. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he, that is God, gave the right to become children of God, who are born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. You see, The beauty of this is you're not born spiritually primarily by your will, but by the will of God. And if God makes you alive, you will remain alive. And the good news is this, that when the world rejects the King, Jesus, you can still stand with him because God will keep you. Four, what kind of king is Jesus? He is sovereign king. He's a sovereign king. Now, that word sovereign, in, every, in, in a, a monarch, a king, a queen, in a sense, every one who is a king or queen, a monarch of some kind, is a sovereign. In fact, sometimes they use the words interchangeably. And and those kings and queens of old and even the ones that exist today in their limited power, they express that sovereignty by making decrees. They they raise some up to prominence and they cast others aside. That's what's happened in history. And and they seek to extend that sovereignty by by conquering other nations around them. Now, as an observer, John included the details, as I already said, the details in this narrative as he saw them. And so what he does here is he includes... Uh, what might be to anyone else, a rather obscure little fact about what happened to Jesus' clothing. And here's how I'll make the connection between this and his sovereignty, but follow me in the thinking. Verse 23, we're told about Jesus' tunic. It was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said, these soldiers, they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. Now, what does it matter what the soldiers did with Jesus' clothing. Well, of course, John tells us. He understands what that meant. Right out of the Psalms, that Messianic Psalm. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. And and just as an example, this is one of, I think, more than 300 ways that the, the Messianic prophecies found in the Old Testament were fulfilled in Jesus. Now, while the many different kings, queens, emperors, czars, despots, and dictators rule, they have limited reach, even within their own lifetimes. And I think we'd agree on that. But Jesus, Jesus as king is sovereign over all. And like, and unlike all other sovereigns who ever have ruled before, Jesus is sovereign in absolute terms. There is Nothing outside of Jesus' governance. Nothing. Even hundreds of years before he took on human flesh, as the word of God, the Son of God, put it into the minds of Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and all of the rest of the prophets, to write about him. To give a a glimpse into the future that Jesus himself, the Sovereign, king would fulfill so while it looked to the crowds like Jesus had no power it was entirely his choice to humble himself but Jesus sovereignty over all things extended to even managing the past and fulfilling what was said in the past in himself in the present what kind of king is Jesus he is a sovereign king He is sovereign over the past. He is sovereign over the future. And he is sovereign over your situation and mine. And as we think about what it means to to humble ourselves before King Jesus, who is sovereign, we can take comfort in this fact, friends. He is sovereign over the affairs of the world. I know things look like they're out of control. The unrest, the pandemic, the economic situation. He is sovereign over all of that. Jesus is sovereign over who will be elected president in November. You need not fret. Cast your vote the best way you can for the most God-honoring policies. Hold your nose if you need to. Figure it out. But you know what? God is sovereign over that. What will come of this disease? Will there be a vaccine? Will there be an effective treatment for covid God is sovereign over that. This thing has not happened in the dark. This thing has not happened without the knowledge of Jesus. He rules it. And we can wake up each morning knowing he's in charge of the next breath we take and the next time our hearts beat. Jesus is sovereign king over if we'll keep our religious freedoms or not. And maybe we feel like some of those have been taken away or might be taken away. Jesus is sovereign over that too. What kind of king is Jesus? He is sovereign. He rules over all. And we can trust him. Finally, Jesus is personal king. Personal king. Now, if you've ever watched or, or observed the royal watchers in England, um, some of them will stand outside of Buckingham Palace just on, the, on the, the news that the queen may be coming out. So just for the, they'll stand there for hours, even overnight, for just the, the, the possibility that they might have a personal greeting from Queen Elizabeth. Very few get that opportunity. And, and at best, it's not much more than a handshake, maybe some simple greeting, some nice words. For most of England, primarily she's a figurehead, but she's a, a, the queen is a distant figure, And and mostly what she does is say nice and encouraging things to her subjects from afar. I'm not impugning her character. She's merely human. I don't doubt that she loves the citizens of Great Britain. But to most people, she is quite impersonal. As a king, Jesus love for his people is proved in the fact of his dying for us. But as king, Jesus is the infinite multitasker. Just look at the way this this story, why does John include this? What, What happens here? Watch what he's doing. As Jesus, the infinite king, was saving the world, he still personally cared for his mother. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, and John is referring to himself here, when Jesus saw his mother and the, he's on the cross, he's dying. He's suffocating to death as he, as he tries to lift himself up, just to catch a breath, and then he falls under the pain. And somewhere between him lifting his body up and falling back down, he, he has the, the focus to see Mary, his mother, and John. And he says to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. Now, in all likelihood at this point, Mary's husband, Joseph, had died. That's likely what had happened by now. But as the firstborn of the household, Jesus had the responsibility to provide for his mother in human terms. So yes, while Jesus is suffering for our sins and the sins of the whole world, he thinks about Mary and how she will be cared for. And he simply entrusts her to John. Now it's a small story. But doesn't it show the beautiful, personal nature of Jesus' love? It's not just, oh, I love the whole world and I'll die for them. Yes, that's huge, that's massive. But he sees you. He saw Mary. And he sees you. And you, and you, and you. And he sees me. He cares for you personally. He is a king over all but he's your king if you've trusted him. The Apostle Paul in describing the Lord giving his son, Romans 8.32 says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, describing his work at the cross, his saving work. And he adds this, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If you just dwell on that for a little bit, how will he not also with his son graciously give us all things? What does it mean to be in the family of God? God the Father graciously giving you all things. Now that all things doesn't mean everything that our flesh desires, no but it's certainly all the things that we need that are for our temporal and eternal good. When those two things meet together, Jesus cares personally for you. And he does this in his place right next to the Father. Is Romans 8, just a few verses later of that section, 34. Who is to condemn? Okay, so can somebody condemn you as a child of God? No, nobody can condemn you. Here's why. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. He is interceding for you, Christian brother and sister. That's what Jesus is doing. He is interceding. For you, when you face temptation, He is interceding for you when you're in such anguish that you don't even know what to pray. He is interceding for you when you pray for your son or daughter who has not professed faith in Christ but who seems to have wandered away. And He is interceding for you. when the emotions are so raw and you don't know how to forgive, he is interceding for you when you feel the uncertainty of a job that's going away. He is interceding for you when you're worried about how you're gonna provide for your family. He is interceding for you on great and small things because what he wants for you is to continue to trust him Jesus is not a distant king. He is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And I was reminded, I was listening to a a podcast this week and I was reminded of this hymn because I I found myself singing along. James Grindley Small wrote this hymn. I used to sing it as a young boy and I was reminded of it this week. It says, I found a friend, oh such a friend. He loved me, ere I knew him, before I knew him. He drew me with the cords of love and thus he bound me to him and round my heart still closely twine those ties which not nothing can sever for i am his and he is mine forever and forever have you found a friend in jesus the king do you go to him moment by moment Do you trust him with your darkest secrets? Have you confessed your deepest sins? Have you trusted him with your soul? Well, I encourage you to do so today. Put your faith in Jesus and keep coming to him. What kind of king is this King Jesus? Well, we can count on the stories that we have about him. They are true. Jesus is a humble king, and, and we need to come to him in humility He's a rejected king. The world around us is gonna reject him. And we have to prepare, be prepared to be rejected with him. But he offers an eternal reward, nothing that this world can ever give to us. Jesus is a sovereign king. He rules over every microsecond, every day, every year. There's nothing over which he does not rule and you can trust him. And Jesus is a personal king. So go to him. Put your faith in him. Seek him. And be comforted by the knowledge of what the word tells you about him. He is for your eternal good. Let's pray. Thank you, uh, Father, for sending your son. And, and while this scene at the cross is hideous in so many senses, it is so, so gloriously beautiful in so many other ways. Because of the eternal result that was accomplished there, Lord Jesus. humble, rejected, sovereign and personal king. Thank you. Thank you for giving yourself for us and giving us a welcome into your eternal family. We wanna live our lives to your praise, Lord Jesus. Help us to do that.